Again. Again. Let's <laughs> all. Let's all sing another song. Let's stretch these summer nights out extra long. Let's set fire to a building we don't like. And watch the glow, enjoy the orange light. Cause we all are gonna die someday alone. Cause we all are gonna die someday alone. Uh, howdy, folks. Welcome to the Garrett Schalke podcast. I'm your host, your boy, Garrett Schalke. And today's guest is a uh, returning one. He's a writer and journalist based in Austin, Texas, originally from my favorite town, Chicago. He has had his work featured in publications such as Consequence of Sound, USA Today, Fatherly, and NPR. He's the author of a novel, the Red Seven, and has recently had a collection of essays titled Existential Thirst Trap published. And that's the main thing we're here to talk about. Uh, folks, let's uh, welcome back Robert Dean. Howdy. Yeah, Robert, how's it going, man? Good. Just got done watching the kids for a little bit and about to go do more South by Southwest stuff. Now, uh, the last time I talked to you, actually, was uh, way back in 2020, during the, when I did a two-part COVID life episode, where I talked to previous guests about their experiences with COVID. So, uh, yeah, I get to now say this line from Lord of the Rings. <clears throat> ah, Robert Dean, I haven't talked to you since the plague. Uh, that was on the phone. The very first time. Yes, it is. Our very first time was in Chicago when you were visiting. Where? Yeah, uh, yeah and I uh, had to scramble find a place to do the interview because uh, the Billy Goat booted me out. You know, yeah. good memories. <laughs> all right, uh, ro- all right, Robert. Uh, it's great to have you on again, man. And uh, the first big question, which is uh, coincidentally has nothing to do with the main subject of the podcast today. Uh, how's South by Southwest going for you right now? Um, South by's been interesting. It's been really, like, I've been going to South by for over a decade. And usually, because it's like 10 days long, and usually, like, we call this week, like, Tech and Movie Week, and it started on Friday. And traditionally, this is like slow time, but it's like, it feels like people are just, yeah, last year was like a, a smaller South by, and it was like not at full strength. This year, people are just going fucking ham. Like, every day there's something going on. I mean, like, I haven't seen a South by this, like, robust with different options to do things. And every day there's just some new wild shit to do. And it's fun. I mean, it's, it's a lot. I'm covering it for the Cosmic 
The Clash, which is Austin's biggest music blog. And uh, I, uh, I, I'm already, like, I've gone to two comedy shows. I've seen, like, five rock and roll shows, drank free beer. You know, when, I, when we're done with this, I'm going to go see my homie Trevor Cavallo. He's throwing a comedy show tonight. And Hans Kim from Kill Tony will be on it. And who else? Leonardo Gianni will be on it. And probably a couple of cool drop-ins. And it's just been ridiculous how much stuff is going on this year. And tomorrow I'm seeing the Black Angels. I saw Rick Shelterly's Burger Patrol the other night. And it's just, it's nonstop. Like, if you... If you let South by take you under, it will. You have to like go into it with like kind of a plan. It's kind of a plan, but you just have to be willing to accept that like you are going to be walking a lot, you're going to be tired, and you're going to definitely need a drink by the end of it because it's just it's so much. Every venue, every block, there's like 20 things everywhere happening because it's not just like this contained thing. It's events in every building, all downtown on the east side, south, and the west side of the city. Alright, you uh, mentioned that this is the craziest one you've been to? I wouldn't say it's the craziest. It's just, it's people, like, all the, South by this collection of, like, brands trying to, like, sponsor stuff. Like, I went to this, like, hip-hop, um, the Museum of Graffiti had this, like, art of hip-hop exhibit. Like, they took over an old record store and they completely painted it and outfitted it. And it's got all these, like, original De La Soul records, like oh, really? De La Soul artwork, it's got the original photos from the test shoots from 36 Chambers Wu-Tang, <laughs> there was flyers from the Treacherous, oh, shit. J. Cole Hurt, there were Fuji's promo pictures, there was all this like iconic hip-hop stuff, and then you go into the back and there was like DJ spinning and all this uh, stuff, and then like Champion was screen printing t-shirts, I'm actually wearing one right now, and uh... Like, Modelo beer was, like, handing out free Modelo beers to everybody. So it's, like, brands get hooked up with these artists or ideas or whatever, and they sponsor stuff. Like, everything in Austin that's within a certain radius for the tourists to get to is, like, every building, gas stations, hotel lobbies, everywhere has something going on. Like, movies are premiered here. Like, the city is crawling with, like, an extra couple of hundred thousand people right now. Okay, uh, how long have you been going to it, both as as a journalist and as a civilian? Uh, I think my first South by Southwest was 2012 or 11. That was my first one, so I've been going for almost, you know, 12, 13 years now. And I've lived in Austin for the last decade. When I lived in New Orleans, I went to two of them before I moved here, and I've been here for a decade, so... So, this is, uh, my third year working as a journalist throughout it all. My third or fourth that I've written it, but this is my first year with a fully accredited badge, so I get like into every event and stuff like that. And it helps that I like know everybody in town, so I can luckily <laughs> just if it's not an official event because we have official and unofficial, and luckily I can I can skate on a lot of these lines and stuff. So, so would you recommend it to uh, the concert goer that's never been to it? Um, yeah, I would. I would definitely. I mean, Austin rules. I love this city. It's my home. I have no plans to leave here. Um, South by fun. I love it. If you're into music and like love finding 
finding new bands that you've never heard of and like meeting a bunch of people from around the world and opening yourself up to like just jumping headfirst in. It's fun because it's not like a traditional festival. This isn't a festival ground. It's literally all over the city. So you're walking down Red River Street and every venue has a show. And like when I say a show, I mean from 10 o'clock in the morning till 2 o'clock in, in the morning all day long is like different like showcases and stuff so one venue could host easily 40 bands in a day so you just gotta like know what you want to do but i mean like i think it's what they say like ten thousand bands will play in austin over the next 10 days <laughs> shit that is a lot yeah it's yeah it's nuts dude there are so many musicians in town like rich hot billies is a local band that they're, they're the best band in austin but they play like they're gonna play like six shows this week, and people come to town and they like maximize their uh, time here. So you'll see a band that you're like, oh man, I really wanted to catch them, but I can't catch them today. They'll probably play three or four times. So it's a long game you gotta play. Huh? Yeah, I uh, gotta get down there sometime. Austin is on my uh, long, never-ending list of places I have to visit sometime in the future. <laughs> Actually, I do have a question down the line, kind of regarding that, but hey, let's get uh, right into the subject, shall we? Sure. Yep. Existential Thirst Trap is your uh, latest book. It's an essay collection. Uh, can you uh, summarize it for us? Uh, it's a collection of different things that I've gone through over the years. I quit writing fiction probably seven years ago. I was just working on a book, and I just hated doing it. I just never felt like myself. And fiction always felt like I was wearing someone else's shoes. It just was, it never felt right to me. I, I felt like I was an imposter the entire time I did it. And I mean, I, I, it was fairly successful. I mean, people bought some stuff. I was in a lot of collections. I was, you know, it was cool. But once, I was doing journalism the whole time. And once I kind of like got into writing essays, because I love David Sarris, Charles McCarthy, he's my favorite writer. I love Hunter Thompson. I love Joan Didion. I love Chuck Klosterman, Samantha Irby, uh, Hinesa Duraquim, and Kise Lehman are like three of my favorite working writers today. And like, I love all of those, and I was like, I want to do that. So I hate this woke shit that I'm about to say, but like for the first time, I felt like I was being seen when I started doing essays. And so I created this weird Venn diagram of like essays and journalism work that kind of cross over into each other all the time. And I finally <laughs> felt like I discovered who I was as a writer. So I just went whole hog into that. And years later, it's just what I do now. It's this between, you know, like I might dabble in a short story in the future. I have one in mind, but like outside of anything, it's, it's, relating what I go through because I try to like balance being funny but also being super serious about like stuff like depression, anxiety. I tell wild ass rock and roll New Orleans stories in there and I talk about Galveston, some of my nights down there which are fun and wild and it talks about divorce and it 
talks about, you know, what it, what it feels like to be alone, what to have, like, those existential feelings of what happens when I die, all that stuff is in there. Mm-hmm. And I tried to have a balanced book that made you think, but also, I didn't want to write some heady bullshit that, like, only some college professor is going to be into. I wanted to write it for the guy who's behind the bar that, like, on a dead night can read. Or the chick who's finishing up her shift at the restaurant and just can sit down and be like, I get this motherfucker. I've gone through this. So that was always the goal with the book was to really to create a book that like people who don't read can get into. Like I wanted it to be like something that could sit next to that like one copy of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and like next to, you know, Charles Bukowski's Women or some shit like that. Like that was always the goal with it. Hmm. Now, uh, is this the first first time you've considered or uh, published an essay collection? It was the first, I mean, I've had a ton of essays published over the years at different places, but this was my first collection doing it, and I'm currently already working on it's the follow-up. I have two books that it's going to follow up that I'm writing at the same time, but essays take oh, nice. whatever inspires me, and I like notes I've got two pieces already done but hopefully in like a year and a half my next one will drop and I already have the title for both of them and everything oh man you're already cranking them out then huh my my goal for the next couple of years is I have that I have that book that fiction book that I'm gonna finish just to like it's my white whale I just want it to be done and over with so I can never fucking look at it again <laughs> But between that and these two essay books that I have in mind, I'm hoping to have a book out every year and a half for like the next couple of years. I have three things that are going to just piggyback each other. Hopefully this book sells. It doesn't come out until May, and I just sent off 70 copies, and I've got a stack in front of me. So hopefully, so far, it's got nothing but five-star reviews, but I need like the Washington Post or... You know, the New Yorker to say that to really get sales. It's great, yeah. and I literally appreciate every single person who does these little blogs and stuff. I, they have my heart. Huh. I get some of these big boys, too. Ah, uh, brother, I uh, know what you mean about getting that fiction book done. I have a novel that, uh, technically, I've been writing on and off for about, I don't know, six years now. And. And I, and I just keep getting weighed down with uh, other projects, including other novels. So, uh, this year I'm hoping to get it fucking finished. But, yeah, uh, yeah it's hard. It just needs, I need to go back in and I'm like ripping apart the plot and I need to like get back in there and really figure it out. But, just, I'm... My head and my heart aren't in it, and when, like, I finally get to a place where they will be, that will be somewhere in the, in the next couple of years. But as of right now, I'm following up the two essay collab. I'm following up the essays with more essays. That's where my head's at. Yeah, the horse. Yeah, I, asked, I actually uh, completed a uh, another. Um, <clears throat> sorry, another novel, part of my uh, Godin series that's coming out later this year. That I also took an extended amount of time to write. And, uh, yeah, I can already tell you the hardest thing about it right now is just editing it. You know, the second, third, fourth drafts. 
Oh boy, uh, it's a lot harder to do that when you got like a, a work you've been working on for like half a decade as opposed to one that you cranked out like a year or two ago. Man, it, it's a struggle. For all those projects, sometimes they just stick in our minds that you're just like, why can't I get this right? And that's that fiction story is that for me. I'm going to get it done at some point. But if it's two years from now, that's fine. I don't know race. I, I know what I do. That's more or less just something that I want to get done to just say that I got it done. Same, brother. Same. All right. So uh, let's get back to the collection here. Uh, tell me about the title, Existential Thirst Trap. Uh, where'd that come from? Um, was wondering if it was a if it was a nod to like millennial Gen Z lingo. say, are you uh, technically a millennial, or are you a little bit older? I'm this weird gray area of, like, Gen Z, I mean, Gen X, and a millennial. I'm 41, and I was born in 1981, so, hmm. like, I was there for, like, the, the when the internet came, I remember it, I remember house phones, I remember cell phones, and pagers, and all that shit. I personally identify more with Gen X than I do with anything else, but, you know, I'm in that, like, they call it older millennials, and, like, this, you know, there are people at the other end of the spectrum that I just can't relate to at all, like, when I see Gen Z kids, I just don't get them at all, and that's just, like, I try not to be, like, the old man in the room about it, but, like, not, just, not the old man yelling at the cloud. Like, I don't get anything Gen Z. Like, I am very much 
slouching towards irrelevance, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I was born in 1987, so I was smack dab in the millennial millennial spear there. But even I, yeah. but even I could feel myself growing older and kind of having the same feelings you do. But uh, but yeah. I do agree agree with you on a lot of points there, but uh, as someone who grew up in a very small, isolated northern Michigan town, I can actually appreciate things like the internet and, uh, you know, things that are more instantaneous, because everything that you mentioned there, I did not have at all. So, uh... Like cool, whatever, and they found out ways to do it through mail order. 
catalogs and things like that. It, it was possible, clearly, because it's been culture for 50 years now in terms of subgenre. And I'm not shitting on that stuff, but I'm saying it's like going from Kid A to Kid B with an Amazon order kind of sucks. Hmm. Yeah, again, I can. I do understand your points. Slightly, slightly disagree, but yeah, I still understand and agree with a lot of what you're saying. Alright, uh, I guess uh, let's get back to the topic at hand. Uh, Existential Thirst Trap, the title. Um, do you, do you uh, have any uh, particularly favorite existentialists, writers, or artists in general? Dostoyevsky, yay or nay? Yeah, I like all the Russian dudes. I think Dostoyevsky had a lot of, like, really good points. What is it, the Brothers Kasanov and stuff? And then, uh, like, he did Crime and Punishment. Did he do Crime and Punishment? Uh, about half of it. It's one of those, th- one of those books I gotta get back to. I've, uh, fully read Poor Folk, House of the Dead, Notes from Underground, and, uh, oh, yeah, definitely the best. And, uh, God, what's the other one? Oh, yeah, The Gambler. Yeah, I've read, like, The Master and Margarita. I like the Russians a lot, so, I mean, it's definitely, um, The Bokov is cool. Like, I like all that stuff. I've even read, uh, the fucking book on the Gulags and stuff. And that's, that was a nonfiction, but, like, and I'm at this whole other weird point that, like, I don't even read fiction anymore. I'm, like, seriously debating of getting rid of all of my fiction because it just sits there. I don't read it. Hmm. Uh, okay, I wouldn't tell you what to do, but I guess I would go by, like, book by book and, like, see what it means to you, I guess, even if you don't read it. Yeah, I mean... That's kind of how I determine I my have, library. Yeah, I mean, I have so many books, dude, and, like, I purged probably 500 of them over the last, like, two years, and, like, there was a point where I had, like, 3,000 books. <laughs> 3,000? Yeah. Holy shit. I, I had a problem there when I was making really good money. I buy used books, so like, you can hop into a garage sale and get 10 books for 2 bucks. You can go to the used book, there's a used bookstore just up the block, and 30 books is 7, 7 books, 30 bucks is 7 books right there. You know, <laughs> that shit adds up over some years. Yeah, I'm, dude, I'm impressed. Even with my reading habits, which has slow down considerably compared to like my teens and early twenties. I don't think I've even yeah, owned I, mean, I don't think I've even owned close to three thousand. I would say right now I conservatively own probably I'm gonna say about fifteen hundred right now. I really parted down a lot 
because I stopped buying shit for like, oh, I'm going to read this or I might need this later down the road. I would buy stuff being like, oh, I'm, I have an idea in my head. I'm going to buy this because I'll use it as a reference later. And then I just realized that I'm never going to use it. So I feel like, dude, I had old medical books. I had books from like, like circuses in the 1930s. And I was like, well, I'll use this. And I'm like, I just never did. So I got rid of it all. Um, it's just one of those things that I just changed my habits with it. Like, I still love, you know, Hiroki Harakami, and I still love some, some stuff like that. But if you give me that, or Noam Chomsky, I'm going to pick Noam Chomsky. I just, I'm at this place where I'm always reading about, like, how can I influence my journalism or essays or point of view rather mm-hmm. than stick it completely within fiction. Ah, oh, I see. Okay, and speak of essays, the essays in Existential Thirst Trap, uh, they were published in elsewhere before you collected them, right? Uh, yeah, I bought half of them. Some stuff was like, first the music, uh, Rolling Stones, I have a copy in front of me. Some stuff was first the music, some stuff was Channel Blade in Australia, Cleaver and Blade ran, um, Anthony Bourdain thing, um, yeah, I mean, like the the pie versus cake thing. Yahoo and Fatherly did that one. No matter how hard they try, uh, a playlist will never be a mixtape. That was Resurrection Press. They did that one. So like fifty fifty. Hmm. All right, great. And uh, folks, uh, you said the your uh, the book's coming out officially in May. You said right. All right, well, folks, uh, your boy here was uh, lucky enough to have Robert provide him a uh, preview copy, you know, for this podcast. And yeah, dude, I uh, very much enjoyed it. It's a great book, very, uh, very entertaining. I've uh, personally liked the narrative essays the most. I really, truly appreciate it, man. As far as I'm concerned, I look at And uh, the book itself is uh, made up of three sections. Free State, Rotten Heart, and Good Men and Gators. Um, what made you decide to put them into sections? And, uh, do th- and in your opinion, do the sections differ from one another in any way? Charlie, I'm ready to go to the bar. I'm down to get fucked up. 
I'm bound to cause trouble, but I'm also a huge pussy that, like, cries about stuff. Like, I'm depressed as hell right now because I'm broken up with my girlfriend who I wanted to marry. Oh, uh, I'm sorry, dude. So, yeah, I, I hate every second of it. And so, um, it's one of those things is just, it's what it is. I'm a complicated person, and Foster saw that because they know me so well. Um, it was a matter of, let's lure people in with these wild New Orleans drinking stories, so it feels like you're like, yeah, this is the bro, man, he's fun. I could imagine myself drinking with this guy. And then through the process of the book, it opens up and you see like what kind of person I actually am. So by the end of it, you're like, holy shit, I could drink a beer with this guy, but I could also cry with him too because the things I feel inside, he's talking about. So we wanted to strike a balance between, yeah, this motherfucker will drink some Jameson with you at a Melbourne show, but at the exact same time, you got somebody that you need to cry to in the middle of the night. Yeah, um, for my reading reading of it, I uh, observed that you generally had two types of essays. Uh, narrative, narratives that detail specific adventures and uh, reminiscences slash thought pieces. Uh, did you prefer to write one or the other? I particularly like the your narrative pieces, especially the ones on New Orleans. Uh, I have to say that's kind of a me thing because uh, I've been really missing New Orleans this past month since uh, been there twice. Went there for the second time last year for Mardi Gras and just had the time of my life, man. So, so that's why I particularly like those essays the best. Uh, <laughs> Really? I fucking hate it. Oh, man. I have a friend in NOLA who uh, kind of feels the same way and also hates the French Quarter. I mean, New Orleans is... New Orleans is complicated because I have, like, so many good feelings about the place, but I also, like, know what it is. Like, you're just sitting on a bar stool, you get fucked up, 
go eat some really good food, talk some shit, maybe get laid, do it all over again. That's what New Orleans culture is. Mardi Gras was never my thing. I did it for, I lived there for five years and I have almost 20 years of history with the city. I have friends there. I was married there and my kid was born there. Like I've got, I went through two hurricanes, an oil spill. And I've got my New Orleans creds. But when like, I don't want to deal with Mardi Gras. I don't want to deal with all the people. I don't give a shit about parades. I don't care about people dressing up like fucking raccoons like having clever puns on their clothes. Okay, uh, actually, uh, this brings up a question that I was going to think of including that I didn't, but I want to include it right now. Um, I mentioned I have a friend in New Orleans that I visited the two times I was there, and uh, when I was talking to them, you know, here I am, the big, wide-eyed Michigan tourist, you know, oh, I love NOLA, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, they went over why they disliked New Orleans, and uh, they were talking about the they were talking about the French Quarter, and according to her, she uh, feels like it's a uh, trap in a way, not not for tourists, but for the locals as well. Mostly in regards to their culture and how they're viewed, even like how they're paid for you know jobs in the French Quarter. Um, do you feel that way as well, or do you have a different view? I don't, I agree, but disagree at the same time. Dude, when you live in town, it's like you have people that are quarter rats that don't leave the quarter. They live in the quarter, they work in it, they don't leave it, they only hang out in those bars. I couldn't do that. I lived all over the city, and there's a lot of good spots to get some meat. There's good shit to go eat in Metairie and Kenner, which is the suburbs. There's shit to eat that's good on the West Bank. But, you know, some people just don't leave that neighborhood. It's But everybody's indicative of that. Like, there are people, when I lived in Chicago, there are people who never left Wicker Park. There are people who never left Wrigleyville. There are people that never left the South Side. Really? Their parents never go to the fucking North Side of the city. Hmm. Uh, someone who's been all around Chicago, that is kind of baffling. Yeah, and I mean, New Orleans is the same way. There are people here in Austin 
don't. I, I live in far northwest Austin. I live in literally my street. The, the main street across from me a block away is the dividing line between Austin and the suburb called Cedar Park. And people are like, oh, you live in South Dallas. I'm like, what the fuck ever, dude? It takes 25 minutes to get anywhere around this town due to traffic. And you make a big deal because I live north from you. You guys have worse. I at least have big paved streets and like multi-lights and stuff. Y'all have these like janky ass backed up South Austin shit and everybody like, I don't think we hang out in South Austin downtown. Every people are like that everywhere. Actually, you're correct. Uh, we we got those people here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and uh, yeah, it's basically just uh, rich white people out in their well protected suburbs, or their uh, racist hicks, pretty much. Oh yeah, I mean, I got friends in like in the Chicago area that live in the suburbs that like they'll like um they'll go somewhere and they'll claim Chicago, and you're like, well, you, you live in fucking Lamont, and you haven't been to the city in, like, eight months. Like, get the fuck out of here. You ain't from the city. You ain't city people. But you, like, will rep it and shit. You go to a White Sox game. You'll go to a Cubs game once in summer. Or, like, go to something in the city which you're not all around there. It's too expensive and parking and shit. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, we got... Well, they don't claim Grand Rapids, but they complain a lot about, you know, crime and <clears throat> a certain race of people they don't like. But they will come to town for, say... I'm not kidding you. This I'm not being stereotypical. They'll come to town if, like, say, Kid Rock or Five Finger Death Punch are in town. Then they'll come. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and it's fucking Grand Rapids, a one-horse town with nothing to do. Like, no, oh uh, no, 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 no. I will stick up for Grand Rapids. It's at least two and a half horses. Yeah, I mean, sure, you get a donkey, fine. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, we'll take that. <laughs> but it's like, come on, bro. Like, you act like you're going to fucking Brooklyn. Get the fuck out of here. They do do that. They'll make posts like, Kid Rock was great at Van Andel today. Glad I got out Grand Rapids alive. It's like, oh, come on, yeah, dude. <laughs> okay. When I see people post shit like that, I'm like, bro, I am from the south side of Chicago and I used to live in New Orleans. Get the fuck out of here. Alright. Alright, enough about people we hate. Let's get back to the talk. Back to the questions here. Okay, like I said, I particularly like the essays on New Orleans. I was uh, wondering why you're a narrative, why you have uh, more narrative essays that focus on your adventures there, as opposed to Chicago or Austin. Um, New Orleans was so transformative that that was the place that I had a lot of adventures. I was in my 20s. I didn't have any kids. I didn't. My point of view was just get fucked up and write. So that was just what I did. And so it, it just stayed there. It just, I have stories from that era. I have Chicago stories and I have Austin stories, but it took me until this summer to write my first real piece about Chicago that Pepper Magazine did, which is going to be in the new book. Um, it's called You Can Go Home Again If You Run It Through the Garden, which is a Chicago slang for like all the shit on a hot dog. But <laughs> That was my first time, really, because I left when I was 27 years old. I had my 27th birthday, I moved to New Orleans, and I'm 41 now. So it took me a long time to, like, really get, like, these, like, tangible memories, because I don't have them. I have them growing up, going to punk rock shows and stuff, 
in Chicago. I have them, but like, I don't have the wild fucking stories like I had in New Orleans because I had no parents near me as on my own and all this other shit. And the Chicago point of view one was very much rooted in, I can look back at this place and I don't have to like chase anything. I'm from there and I'm proud to be from there. And that's over now. I'm a son of the city, but I've evolved from my upbringing, which, you know, I heard the N-word. I've said the N-word. I grew up in that environment of, like, calling people homophobic slurs and being working class south side of Chicago shit. And I grew up in that, and I had to unlearn it. And I got good with being like, I'm not you guys anymore, but you are where I'm from. And so that point of view took me a long time to come to. And with Austin... I'm working on something on Austin. I just, I like I, when I got to Austin, I was a father. I was married, and like mm-hmm. I've had some wild Austin nights. But like when I got here, I became a professional. Like I was a writer in New Orleans, writing for these free magazines, and I had stuff published. And I had some like my every byline in town I had. But like when I got to Austin, I got official. Like my first job was writing for Apple. My book got published. Another book got published. I got all these bylines. I started hitting all these marks. And in my last decade of living here, have I done some wild shit? Yes. But, like, my life changed when I moved here. And it wasn't that, like, crazy party way, which I can kind of, I can belabor, but it's not like it was when I was in my 20s. Like, now it's more or less like, you know, like, I'm fucking, my friend drives a moped and the, the two of us are covered in tattoos and fat work, take our shirts off and riding down the street to go to the cowboy honky tonk at two o'clock in the morning. It's fun. I've got good drinking stories, but those really weird transformative in the ether moments, that's just, exa- it's one place in time. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm done writing about New Orleans. Like the next book is not going to have that city in it at all. All right. Okay, uh, in regards to your, uh, uh, what? Was that a good answer? Yeah, yeah, it was. It answered everything and beyond that. Anyway, uh, in regards to, this is a question that I really, like, really wanted to ask. as about another subject that I'm personally invested in, meaning I've been thinking about for some time. Uh, in regards to your reminiscences, thought pieces, um, What's your opinion on nostalgia as both a concept and a feeling? Do you view it as good, bad, or something different? How do you process um, nostalgia? Me, personally, I'm a go-back. I mean, I'm a, a constantly move-forward kind of person. Like, I have people in my life when stuff goes bad, they refer back to, like, a place that they lived or a person that they were with and they they, they put on those colored glasses that like there was a reason why you left or there was a reason why that relationship didn't work someone was toxic or whatever and because of that I don't choose to live like that like I think that there's nobility in you know reminiscing about the past and being like oh fuck man that was a good time but like do I want to be 27 again? No. I'm doing my best work now and finally making shit happen. Do I have regrets? Yeah, I have a ton of them. And, but, I look at life just as you should constantly keep moving forward. There's nothing bad about looking back and enjoying it for what it is or like, 
having a chef's kiss moments where you're like, that was fucking cool, man. I'm glad I was a part of that. But like, constantly trying to relive like night like 2006, it's just not, not. I'm not interested in that. All right. Okay. Uh, this is actually the last question of this uh, two-part interview, I guess, in regards to the book specifically. So. Overall, uh, how do you feel about uh, Existential Thirst Trap? I'm really proud of it. Um, it's, I, it was a labor of love, man. I worked my ass off to get this thing done, and I put in a lot of work. I put in some sweat equity into it. it we did not spare any expense in getting it to make the book look good, to have it laid out correctly, to have it was edited professionally by a line editor. I worked with Foster to get it whipped into shape so it read good like my heart and soul are in these pages and I really and truly hope that people bond to it because I didn't leave anything on the table and I when I follow this book up I continue to not and I hope that this is the jumping off point for me because I've sat at this glass ceiling for a minute here and I'm hoping this is finally the thing that puts me in a different league and I believe, and I, I'm not talking shit, I believe that there's room for everybody at the table, but I believe I'm just as good as the people that I have cited earlier. I don't think that I'm playing in a class that I don't belong in. I'm just as good as some of my favorite authors, and I think the proof is in the pudding. I got not one review that wasn't a full-blown five stars. And so until I get knocked on my ass, and so people say it sucks, or the 70 books that I just sent out to the New, York, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, and all that kind of, and the Washington Post, and the Chicago Sun-Times. If no one bites, then that'll be a real kick in the nuts, and I'll feel really bad about it. But I'm just remaining optimistic that the cover looks good, the title's cool, and the work is there. I just need people to read it, and hopefully they'll join me on this journey where they can continue to hopefully be entertained by what my thought process is about life. <laughs> all right, and, um, all right, that concludes the first part of this interview. Uh, I guess, say, the serious part where we talk about the books, the book itself. And now uh, we go on to my favorite part, the fun questions part. Now, these are from the... T I chose these from uh, the main topics that you covered in the book. No. Since I had a lot of times where I was reading it, and I would have to reread again, because like, w wait, what? You did what? You met who? <laughs> Alright, so let's get on to the fun questions. Now let's have a grand old time. Alright, so uh, first one. Yeah, I, uh, in your NOLA essays, I recognize many of the locations, including the dungeon, went there. But uh, I was wondering... Uh, I didn't recognize any of the places that you mentioned in the Skid Row section. Is Skid Row even still around in NOLA? Yeah, yeah, we call Skid Row. That's the block where Sneaky Pete's, um, Gemini, and uh, Backspace are. They're right there on lower charters near Canal. And right around the corner used to be where Dixie Divas was, and across from Dixie Divas was a China, uh, Asian fucking rub and tug, and then there was also a gay bathhouse that you had to know the knock to get into that was right there. I'm not sure if the rub and tug or the bathhouse is still there because I haven't lived in town in 10 years and I'm not exactly going in to get my dick sucked by the <laughs> dude. 
First, first fun question. Second fun question. Boy, you're gonna love this one. Uh, okay, you wrote a really great essay on Anthony Bourdain. You know what he meant to you, how he influenced you, and just the culture in general. So, uh, so I really was wondering, what do you think of uh, celebrity chefs today, like Gordon Ramsay or Guy Fieri? Like a, doesn't he have like a TV series call coming up where like he apparently investigates the cocaine trade? I don't know. Yeah, I, mean, I saw that. It's like Gordon Ramsay on cocaine or something. Yeah, they like have done. They have tried so hard to make like they've tried like three different TV concepts with Gordon Ramsay to like put him in that Gordon like role. The problem is, is like you can't. You can't fake what that dude was. Like, he was a working class chef. Like, he wasn't working fine dining, dude. He was dunking fries at fucking Leal. He was a working chef. He hung out with bartenders and musicians and, like, had late nights. The shit that, like, I write about because that's what I come from. That's what he knew. And that's why people loved him because he, he knew the late nights of those people. Gordon Ramsay's been famous since he was, like, 22. 
and they want him so bad to step into that role, but it's never going to happen. He's never going to be that guy. Gordon Ramsay's never going to, like, Gordon Ramsay goes to a fucking Nickelback show and Kai Vieira is having a great time. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the vibe, man. That's not what Bourdain was, and that's, they'll never be able to, like, you know, Gordon Ramsay's never going to go to a fucking, you know, Biggie and the Stooges show and not stand out like a sore thumb. Like, I mean, I mean, he stand. I mean, he would stand out out too when he's investigating the cocaine trade. Jeez, can't imagine that going well. Yeah. So, oh, and I don't hate Guy Guy Fieri, but uh, I admit I was a little bit peeved seeing uh, pictures of it and video of him at the. Last Rage Against the Machine tour, where uh, they just showed him rocking out, smoking cigars to like killing in the name of. It's like, uh, oh come on, dude. Dude, he's just like a lovable dork. I know. He's a good chef. He's like a good dude. He's like a good dude. I'm just being a petty, jealous bitch because I couldn't afford to go see Rage. I had Rage tickets and I sold them. Alright, final part of this question. Uh, What is your opinion on uh, Jim Harrison as both a writer and a foodie? Because you did mention him. Uh, the woman um, lit by fireflies. That one was really good. Um, I've got a couple of his poetry books. Those are really good. Um, when it comes to like uh, the food stuff, like I can't remember the names of them, but there's like the one that's like always hungry. I can probably find one in my room right now. Um, but I've read some of his, and Jim Harrison was just an iconoclast. There's nothing that that man did that I don't love. Oh yeah, probably the. Best writer ever come out of Michigan. So. Yeah, and he was. Jim Harrison was great. Alright. Alright. Uh, Third fun question. Uh, you wrote that you worked at the Chicago Board of Trade. Uh, what was that like? Nobody understood like who I was as a person. 
and I hated it. So I wanted to go back to Chicago, but this was 2003, man. Like we didn't have the internet like we have now. We didn't have these like easy to find communities. Like you had to work to know what was happening in writing, and you had to have some like friend of a friend juice to get a job at like the you know the Sun Times or some shit like that. So. Um, different times. I got a gig at the Chicago Board of Trade. Somebody was like, just we're in the business, start as a runner, and you'll, we'll get help you get a job doing PR in, on the marketing team in, in that office. And I was like, okay, cool. And for five years, I did that shit. And it was uh, an interesting time. Was it five years? It was like, for, like maybe four. But I did it for like four years, and you're a 20 three-year-old, two, three-year-old kid, and you're, like, seeing these traders fucking throwing money around, hey, like, betting hundreds of dollars on, like, baseball games, and it was just gambling, and it was, like, late nights, and I'm in my 20s, one of these millionaire dudes just throwing money around, like, fucking their books <laughs> and making cocaine runs, and people, like, just had jobs on the floor as, like, a runner, but they were just a coke dealer and shit, and they're, like, selling weed, and, like, People would be like, hey, here's a hundred bucks, go buy that entire pit, a bunch of fucking... They, like, there were times when people would just give me like $200 to buy like as many chicken nuggets as I could order for McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was like, that was like the time that Dean, my brother in Christ, that was a lot more explicit of an answer than I expected. Yeah, nice. That's how I describe it. <laughs> All right, uh, next fun question. Uh, you mentioned there that you had a chance to see the, uh, Nirvana at the Aragon Ballroom in 1993, but uh, yeah. couldn't do it due to bad behavior. Um, what did you do to get banned from there? So Nirvana has been my favorite band Halloween at the Aragon that year. This was on in utero, so it was 94, it was 93. 
coming in to like the uh, 94 because Kurt had the following spring. And uh, I had gotten a ticket for my birthday. That was my present that my cousin was going to take me. My cousin Bruce is dead now. And he was going to take me. That was my birthday present. And I was like, fuck yeah, dude, I'm going to see her And I was stoked. And I got in trouble. So me in school just never, I was the smartest kid in my class when it came to writing and like different things. But me in school just did not get along. When I was in third grade, they couldn't figure out like why I hit a brick wall because I was so bad at math. And I excelled in English and all the other shit, but like language arts, I was killing it. But like when it came to the other things, it was just, it, I, I was so doomed with science and math. And this is the 80s, man. They never teach me. Or the 80s, 90s. And so when we got there, I was just fucked off school so much. I was just not a good student because I just hated how they, what they, like, I'm killing it writing little stories and doing my English homework, but yet, you guys are treating me like an asshole because I can't do something else. And so, I got in trouble and, like, got really bad grades, and my mom and dad were like, no, bro, this ain't the move. You're not going to the show. And I was like, god damn it, why? And they're like, no, you're not going to the show. You have to get good grades. You can't. They, they took me really seriously because I was like, when I was a kid, they were like, dude, set up a college fund. This kid is really smart. And so I had to live to a higher standard than other people in my family. And so I didn't get to go to see Nirvana and my mom was like, you'll see him next time. Kurt was dead in the spring. Oof. Oof. Uh, well, I have to say I fucked up here because uh, when I read it, I thought you something happened that got you banned from the Aragon Ballroom. Like, they, uh, they would not allow you back in there. I saw Vigent's Machine at the Aragon. I saw Pantera, Offspring, Nine Inch Nails. I saw Manson there. I saw tons of big shows at the Aragon over the years. Okay, my bad then. Fuck Soundgarden at the Aragon. <laughs> Alright, uh, next fun one. As for one of my other favorite essays, besides your NOLA ones, I uh, really like the one you did on Hank Williams Sr. He's, uh, he is, he is also my favorite country artist, and, uh, you and I have the same favorite song, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. And, uh, I was wondering, uh, what do you think of, uh, his son, Hank Williams Jr., and his grandson, Hank Williams III? Um, I think Hank Jr. was corny as fuck. Um, I just, his whole hillbilly, nut maga shit got real old to me. I mean, like, who doesn't love family tradition? It's fun, and Country Boy can survive. He is fun, you know? got, uh, what's it, um, it's having ain't a lot like Dixie. He's got some cuts, man, but his whole, once Hank Jr., just, that's why you don't see him really, is because he went crazy Republican, and oh, I... he kind of, like, went so far right, corny, that's why he just, they, they took the, uh, fucking, uh, football shit away from him, because then it went to Carrie Underwood. But they thought they were toying about, like, bringing him back, and then he went fucking full-blown MAGA, and people were like, nah, So, that's kind of, like, where I sit with him, is just, like, those songs are fun, but I also know, like, what a piece of work that guy is, so... Oh, uh... I ain't really... Oh, I, I know exactly... I know exactly what you're talking about, and, um... Not to give too much away, but, uh... My editor, my editor and I are starting a new podcast this upcoming weekend, and uh, it's about 
what we call dad blues rock. And uh, the first album we're reviewing is Hank Jr.'s latest album, Rich White Honky Blues. And yeah, uh, that's what I'm saying. it's bad. Here's a preview for it. It's that, bad. That, that, that's the shit I'm talking about. It became this poor me fucking tomfoolery that I just, I'm not interested in. It's just whatever, man. It's just the whole shit's gross. So, but when it comes to Hank 3, um, I really like some of his stuff. When he does the country stuff, it's fun. I've seen him a couple of times, and it was a good time. And the country stuff is good. And, you know, uh, he's got that T-Ray White tune that's really good. And all those records, and he'd do his granddaddy songs and stuff. And it was always fun to see him. And then he'd do the second half of the set. He'd all right, you motherfuckers, we're going to do, like, uh, what was his name? A- Ass Jack. Uh, fuck. Huh? Ass Jack. Yeah. And all that stuff. But it was fun. You know, I like some of it. I prefer the country stuff, but I dig it. Now, his kid, he does four now. Oh, yeah, I four, four, right? Yeah, I saw four a couple of months back, and it really wasn't my speed. Um, not really. I just wasn't into him at all. My friends dug him, but I just, it just did nothing for me. And, uh, that's kind of where I'm at with it. I would say Granddaddy's still number one king all, obviously, and then I'd probably put, you know, three there because those country records are fun. And then I like when he was in Down for a while and doing, or he wasn't in Down, he was doing Super Joint Ritual and did some stuff with Phil Anselmo. But I, I've heard that that dude's been fucking on and off the shit for a while, so that's why you really don't see him these days. Oh, yeah. But that, just, that could just be conjecture. I don't know. Yeah, that's uh, actually been a joke in some of the country music groups I'm in. Whenever someone says, like, oh, man, when Hank, when's Hank 3 going to perform again? I really want to see him. You, uh, We reply, oh, uh, just go down to your local meth lab. He'll be there. Yeah, find some heroin. Yeah, but uh, my ranking is the same as you. Hank Sr. first, Hank 3 second, Hank Jr. third. Um, yeah, that's, that's where I sit with it. All right. Okay, uh, oh, oh, God, I almost fucked up that one. Uh, you mentioned, too, that you wrote the liner notes for a Hank Williams tribute album. Uh, yeah, you did? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, which one was it? Well, the the one the tribute album that I'm familiar with because I own it is a uh, timeless, and uh, there's also one that Bob Dylan put out. He got a bunch of people together to finish up some Hank Williams songs that he didn't finish up. This one was not that. I'm looking. I have a huge box of like stuff of like things that I've read in over the years, like different magazines and. financially 
for me to like, because we were living in Austin already. And uh, if I was living in New Orleans at the time, I'd have probably tried to have made it to the event. But a lot of the like drifting cowboys and stuff were there. It was a major bummer that I didn't get to be there for it. All right. <clears throat> Sorry. Okay, uh, final uh, two questions here. You're going to love this, love these ones. Uh, so, have you been paying attention at all to the Chicago mayoral race? Yeah, I mean, casually. It's my hometown. I've been paying attention as much as I can. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I think anybody with two fucking ears knew that. So, overall, uh, what do you think of Lightfoot's reign? Oh, yeah, she's stunk. There it is. It was called Midnight, the Death of Hank Williams. Midnight, the Death of Hank Williams. Okay, I'm going to have to look that up yeah. later. Yeah, it has Jake Penrod on it, Joey Alcorn, Ernie Hill, a lot of, like, a couple of the uh, Drifting Cowboys played on it, Bobby Chamberlain, David Church. Uh, Wait, uh, David Church? Of, like, Rachel Brooke was on this one. It was a lot of, um, what you call it? Um, a lot of that drifting cowboys like played on those songs. Wait, you said David Church. Uh, uh, David Church? Is that what it said? Okay, I'm about to say not Eric Church, the other, the country no, star today. David Church. All right. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's called Midnight, the Death of Hank Williams. I just found it. Like I said, I got this gigantic book. I mean, not book, like this Tupperware box of like magazines and my books and all this stuff. It's for my kids. Oh, okay. All right, I'm going to look that up later then. Anyway, uh, back to the question. Uh, Lori Lightfoot, not a good mayor. No, I mean, she was just so divisive on, like, her language and her policies. Like, she would She got smoked. Yeah, it was. <laughs> you can't, you can't think you're a good mayor after the shit that like she basically said and did with their policies and stuff. And if you're gonna have these draconian policies, you at least have to be a likable person, which she wasn't. So yeah, uh, you know, I was zero percent shocked that she didn't make it. And it's gonna be really interesting to see Paul Ballas because when I was growing up. I remember when Paul Ballas was the CEO of, of private stuff at schools. Which, and, which uh, by the way, that is an insane title to a non-Chicagoan like myself, the CEO of a school. I don't know. So all of Chicago, he was in charge of all Chicago public schools when I was growing up. So Paul Ballas went through the... Uh, He's very, he's a conservative, but he's very much like a Chicago conservative that's, you know, not, uh, 
you know, not exactly, he's, he's got to like, lean more middle left, even though he's like a fiscal conservative. But that dude Brandon, who's running, because it's going to be a runoff between the two of them, but I think that dude Brandon's ultimately going to win because um, I can't see Chicago ever electing a Republican there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I've argued with people about that. Even some uh, quote-unquote Republican candidates in Chicago were, I was like, God, they're fucking jokes. They really don't have any kind of, like, real policy that I see that Chicagoans would actually accept. Most Mostly it's just, you know, shit like, well, Chicago needs more freedom and liberty. Oh, and we should bring the military to the South Side. Stop the gangs. You know, just bullshit like that. That's, uh, that's never going to be the answer with Chicago. Being from the South Side, I can tell you that the places that need the most help, you have to put programs in place. Like the generation that exists right now, lost. You're never getting them back. You have to start with children. You have to give them programs to to like see that there is life that's not on the block, that's not being a rapper. And that's not playing sports. You have to give them opportunities to see people driving. And you have to do that with, like, decent fucking schools. Not living in a food desert. Not living in places where there are no after-school activities. When I was a kid growing up, you still knew that these neighborhoods were, like, getting the shaft. And until you fix that in incremental, serious change that affects the generation of tomorrow, that's when you're going to see those neighborhoods turn around. But right now, rolling in there with the military ain't going to do shit. Because those people got just as much fucking firepower as they do. Yeah, gee, just a dumb fucking Republican fancy. So, uh, so hey, so, hey, which do you prefer, Brandon Johnson or Paul Vallis? Um, I'm, I mean, I'll never vote for a Republican ever, so, like, zero chance I'll ever. I think those liberal Democrats are full of shit, too. But because I'm a socialist and I believe in the power of unions and the working class, not like a bunch of fucking butterflies and rainbows putting stickers over, you know, whatever, Brandon's going to end up winning. But I'll support that, but I'll never vote for a Republican as long as I fucking live. There's nothing that they stand for that I agree with ever. Yeah, from, from the coverage I've been, you know, watching on and off, they portray Ozzy Johnson as, like, the candidate for the teachers' union, whereas Vallis is the guy for the FOP, Federal Order Police. Oh, yeah. So, pretty accurate there? Yeah, I'd say that's pretty accurate. <laughs> Alright. Uh, final question, and this is another one I've been mean to ask a true, a true blue Chicagoan. I am a Michigander who loves Chicago, so I do not know the answer, and it's been puzzling me for a while, and hopefully you, Robert Dean, could answer it for me. <clears throat> Why are Chicago mayors seemingly all the time at war with the teachers' union? Like, the two, like I'm basing this question off especially the two mayors I'm most familiar with, which are Lori Lightfoot and Rahm Emanuel. Like, it always just seems the, the mayors of Chicago are just always at war with them. Uh, is there, like, a reason for that? I mean, traditionally, every other union... Did, I mean, the, the mayor's always at war with the unions, period. Oh, okay. And traditionally, the teachers' union want to be paid fairly. That's, every union does the same shit. 
they want, you know, to not, the difference between the, the reason why you see it more with the teachers versus like, like plumbers going on strike is, you know, so the toilets don't get fixed. There are some like private guys who aren't in the union that might not, you know, want to do that and they might want to make money versus if your kids don't go to school, that fucks up everybody's life. We saw that with COVID. So of a, of a whole group of teachers decide, fuck that, we want to get paid. As far as I'm concerned, dude, I don't like cops. I'm not a pro-cop guy, but I will say that cops, firefighters, EMS, first responders, military, and teachers all deserve to make a fuckload of money. They all deserve it because you're going to run into a fucking burning building, you deserve to get paid for that. If you're going to drive the truck that hopefully saves my ass if something bad happens, you deserve to get paid for that. If you're going to be a cop, I hope you get the proper training that you deserve to be a cop, but you also deserve to be paid for that. Same thing with the military. If you're willing to die for the country, you deserve to be paid and taken care of when you come home. Not some glad-handing bullshit. You deserve to be paid to do these jobs because they're the jobs that most people don't want to do. Most of my friends who are teachers fucking hate it because between parents and systematic bullshit, they don't want to do the job anymore. So yeah, they want 50 bucks an hour at this point because just to do the job, Half of them have to buy their own school supplies, and half of them have to deal with these asshole parents who are stupid as fuck, and they don't know how to even, like, be basic adults, but yet they're getting mad at them about curriculum stuff that they have nothing to do with. So, it really just all depends on, it's just the most visible union, where when they strike, it really does affect people. Hmm. Alright. Alright, folks, uh, this has been Robert Dean. Talking to us straight from Austin, Texas. Yeah, we had a good time tonight. We uh, talked about your new book, Essay Collection, Existential Thirst Trap, which is coming out in May. We talked some fun questions. We talked Chicago. Yeah, man, it was great having you on again. Yeah, much appreciated. Always down. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, dude. Uh, promo time. Uh, honestly, if you would like to promote your work, where can people find you? Uh, anything you want. Uh, Existential Thirst Trap will be out May 8th uh, by a big laugh comedy. You can pre-order it right now on Barnes & Noble. The Amazon link is really weird, so some days it works, some days it doesn't. Uh, they're having like, this really weird connection to the distributor, and I don't know why. You can get the Kindle, the Kindle version easily, but if you want the paperback, I would say go through Barnes & Noble if you want to pre-order, which please pre-order it. That'd be great. I could really use the sport. Um, otherwise, if you want to find me, I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram. No, I'm not on TikTok. No, I'm not on any other form of social media because those two are more than enough. And, uh, yeah, if you can do anything... Nice for somebody tomorrow. The world is full of assholes. You can do one kind thing. That's one less bad sin that everyone else has to deal with. All right, folks. Uh, you can find all those links in the show description. And uh, thanks for listening. You can, uh, well, listen to this podcast pretty much every, on any uh, stri- on any service except for Apple, as usual. Steve Job hates me even beyond the grave. Uh, you can find me, find my personal Twitter at Garrett Schalke. The podcast Twitter is at Schalke Podcast. And yeah, uh, that's the show. Uh, Dean, 
thanks for, again for coming on, dude. Thanks, I appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me. Yep. And uh, folks, we'll see you next time. Here is Thoutro Song. See my friend.